Uh, we find ourselves this morning uh, coming to our final message in a series that I began way at the beginning of the year called Confronting the Culture. And uh, I wanted to take aim at some of the lies that our present culture seems most eager to promote, lies that attack the most foundational truths of the Christian worldview, that attack the most foundational truths of reality itself. We confronted our culture's rejection of the very concept of truth and demonstrated that truth exists and that it is objective, that it's an expression of the mind and character of God rather than derived from the consensus of human societies. And we confronted the culture's lie of that we are virtually self-creators who fashion ourselves in our own image, who create our own identities the way that we see fit with no accountability to anyone but our sense of authenticity to our inner selves. We confronted that lie of expressive individualism as being the greatest virtue of our, our generation. We demonstrated instead that we are creatures created by God to be His image and thus to be visible reflections of Him to the world, and that therefore we receive our identity from Him. We don't create our own. We receive our identity from our Creator. And that led us to confront the culture's most absurd lie yet, and that is transgenderism. And we showed how God has designed mankind to glorify Him in our distinctiveness as male and female. And if that's true, if men glorify God when they look and speak and behave like men and not women, and if women glorify God when they look and speak and behave like women and not men, well, then that means we must answer the questions of biblical masculinity and femininity. What does the Bible say men behave like? What does it say that women behave like? And to answer those questions, we embarked on a study of biblical manhood and womanhood. And I confess I did not know at the beginning how long that that would take. And as I studied, I discovered at least nine marks of each. And, and as I've said, I've, I've sent apologies to Mark Dever for the nine marks uh, thing, but it works well. Some of you don't have any idea about the book, The Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. It's a good book. You should read it. But there were nine marks of biblical manhood. And we went through those over a course of three sermons. I'll just repeat those nine marks. If you're interested in digging further in, you can get those messages online. But we discovered that a biblical man is a leader, a lover, a provider, and a protector. He is strong, sensible, dignified, sound in doctrine, and sound in speech. And then we turn to the nine marks of biblical womanhood, and we've taken three sermons to cover four of those nine marks so far. And again, I'll just state the ones that we've covered. Again, if you've missed those messages, you can download them from our website. But so far, we've found that a biblical woman is a helper. She is beautifully modest. She has a gentle and quiet spirit and is a worker at home. And so if any of those designations intrigue you, especially to our visitors who haven't heard the rest of the series, uh, you can feel free to pursue those messages online. But this morning, we're going to consider five more marks of biblical womanhood in the hopes of describing the kind of woman that each sister in Christ ought to aspire to be in order to conduct her life to the glory of God in accordance with His design in creating us male and female. So not only is the woman a helper, not only is she beautifully modest, not only possessed of a quiet spirit, not only a homemaker, but also number five, a fifth mark of biblical womanhood is that she is a learner. She is a learner. And we see that from a passage that we've visited a couple of times already. You can, we'll be turning to several passages this morning. You can start in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and specifically in verse 11. 
Paul is addressing the woman's role in the corporate assembly, in the local church gathering, and he says in 1 Timothy 2.11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. And of course, the emphasis there is on the submissive manner in which a woman is to attend public worship. In that context, she is to be a learner rather than a teacher. And, and, and the next verse makes that abundantly clear. But embedded in this instruction from the Apostle Paul is an imperative, a, a command for the biblical woman to be a learner. A woman must receive instruction. Now, that's a third-person imperative from the verb manthano, which means to learn. So literally, the verse says, let the woman learn. And so you see what Paul is saying, even though women are not to be teaching men in the context of the corporate assembly in accordance with God's design for men and women, well, neither are they to be shut out of the learning process, as was often the case in the first century. Now, the Babylonian Talmud speaks of the Jewish worship service in the synagogue and says, the men came to learn, the women came to hear. But Paul says, no, let the, the woman learn. She is to be a learner. And this seems to be especially relevant in our conservative evangelical circles today because there are some who are so disgusted by the rampant feminism and egalitarianism in the church today, so disillusioned by the horrific state of so-called women's ministries, that they swing the pendulum. Since so many self-appointed female teachers are drifting into error and leading many astray, well, some suggest that women ought not to teach other women theology at all, and that therefore they ought not to concern themselves with learning the depths of systematic theology and church history. Instead, they should focus on devotional reflections on passages that they can apply to their domestic responsibilities. Now, I, I acknowledge that feminism has ravaged so many of the quote-unquote ministries of popular female quote-unquote preachers and authors, and it does grieve me to see women's book clubs and Bible studies turn into little more than emotion-driven group therapy sessions. But the remedy for that is not less theology. It's not less of a focus on the deep things of God, on the meaty truths of sound doctrine, on the proper interpretation and application of Scripture. The remedy for that is more Bible. The remedy for that is more doctrine, more discernment. Paul says, let the woman learn. And the term manthano is just the verb form of the cognate noun mathetes, which is the word the New Testament uses for disciple. And at the heart of that term is the concept of being a learner. A disciple is one who learns by following a teacher. And insofar as a woman is a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ, she is to be a learner, a disciplined studier and applier of the Word of her God. Her soul is to pant after knowing her God as the deer pants for the water brooks, Psalm 42.1. And that longing must resolve itself in studying all she can of what God has revealed of Himself in the Scriptures. We need to have done with the vapid, saccharine women's ministry pablum the, the, the sappy, syrupy, God thinks you're beautiful just the way you are shtick that strokes women's egos but puts no steel in their spines. We need women of conviction, women who are steadfast in the truth of Scripture and who are ready to pass on those convictions and that truth both to her children and to her younger sisters in the body of Christ. And the theological malnourishment that results from saying, well, let the men worry about the theology, just keep telling me how beautiful God thinks I am, produces spiritual twigs that snap under the slightest of pressure. But we need women who are oaks, 
who are solid and steadfast in a feminine way, but solid, solid and steadfast, who can bear the spiritual weight of discipleship, who are examples of patient perseverance under trials, who are composed of a gentle and quiet spirit and not ruled by emotions, who can be a source of wisdom and encouragement for her children and for her church. We spoke last time about how there is no one in the world who exerts a greater influence on a child's life than that child's mother. The sheer amount of time that a mother gets to spend modeling a life of faithfulness with her young children guarantees that. The most influential people on the planet are those who shape the thinking and the worldview of the next generation. And God's design is for that influence to be mediated primarily through mothers. And so I would hope then, ladies, that you know the Scriptures at least as well as your husbands do. Those who spend the most time evangelizing our children ought to be full of the Word that makes, them, makes those children wise unto salvation. Those who are responsible for equipping our children to live wisely and skillfully under the Lordship of Jesus ought to be drenched in the Proverbs, which teach us how to walk in the fear of Yahweh, which is the beginning of wisdom. Moms need to be able to explain the dynamics of spiritual change to children, how the heart is tempted by sin because it's promised a satisfaction in sin that never does come but how the sweetest satisfaction that the heart can know comes from communion with Christ on the path of obedience. Insofar as a woman is to teach her children how to live well in this world, there is an immense need for her to be a learner, a disciple of what the God of the world has said and how it maps onto day-to-day living in His world. And it's not just her own children. It's her sisters in Christ It's being a good friend. It's being an instrument of sanctification in the lives of fellow church members. Someone to whom younger women in the faith can come and say, you've walked with Christ longer than I have. Why can't I find the motivation to be in the word or prayer? Or why can't I subdue this particular sin in my life? What strategies have you found helpful given all the challenges of young motherhood or being a woman in this generation? What strategies have you found helpful in rising up against temptation and putting off sin and putting on righteousness? These are questions that only a learner can answer. Only a student of the Word can answer. Let the women learn. Let them learn bibliology. Not only the contents of the Scripture, but the character of Scripture itself, that it's inspired and infallible, and inerrant, and authoritative, and sufficient, and all that those words mean and entail. Let them learn theology proper, not just the Word, but the God of the Word, that He is sovereign, and immutable, and impassable, and self-sufficient, and eternal, and infinite, that He's triune, one essence, subsisting in three co-equal co-eternal persons. Let them learn the person and work of Christ and the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Let them learn the doctrines of man and sin so that they're able to answer the questions, who am I and what has gone wrong with me? Let them learn of the great work of atonement, of what really happened on the cross when our Savior died for sinners Let them learn of the Spirit's work of regeneration. What does it mean to be born of God? And the Spirit's work of sanctification. How do we put off sin and put on righteousness? Let them learn the doctrine of the church. Why do we come here on Sundays? What is this supposed to be for? What is this supposed to look like? Who are these people who stand up and preach the Word? And how, how is it that we are to relate to them? And let them learn eschatology. What is the hope that anchors my soul? What is it that we look forward to receive from the hand of God in the future? What anchors my hope 
and grounds my faith in the present time given the future. Dear sisters, you must be a faithful master of the home. We, we heard of that the last time I was with you in 1 Timothy 5, the oikod despotes, the master of the house. But you can't just study the recipe book and be a sound, mature Christian woman. You must be a woman of the Word, and so you must be a learner of Scripture. And then not only a learner, but a teacher as well. That's sort of anticipated in this point here, but it deserves its own billing. And so a sixth mark of biblical womanhood is that she is not only a learner, but also a teacher. And perhaps the primary application of that for most women is that alongside her husband, she is to train her children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Proverbs 6.20 says, My son, observe the commandment of your father and do not forsake the teaching of your mother. And we saw in our last sermon how the exalted Proverbs 31 woman, Proverbs 31.26, opens her mouth in wisdom. And the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. And again, just from the sheer amount of hours spent together, there is no one more influential on a child's education than her mother. And therefore, she is to give herself to being a teacher of her children in the ways of the Lord so that they grow up to be disciples of Jesus Christ. We see the effect a mother's influence had on Timothy himself so many of these teachings are coming from the letters of Paul to Timothy. And Timothy was Paul's protege. He was one of the most influential figures in Christian history. And in 2 Timothy 3.14, Paul charges Timothy to continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them. Well, from whom did Timothy learn them? Perhaps Paul's referring to himself in some way there about things that Timothy has learned lately, but we get a clue about what he means more than that in verse 15 of 2 Timothy 3. He says, And that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. Timothy knew the saving scriptures since he was a child. But how was that? Acts 16.1 says his father was a Gentile. So it wasn't from his dad that he learned these things. Well, 2 Timothy 1.5, Paul says, For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. You see, even when this young man's father was unavailable to provide him with the spiritual leadership he needed, his grandmother and his mother were the means God used to bring Timothy to saving faith. And so, moms, I plead with you to be teachers of your children. Grandmoms, insofar as it's appropriate, teachers of your grandchildren. Don't leave the totality of spiritual instruction for your husband to do. It won't look the same, surely. And it needs to be there, of course, as much as it's able to be. But that day-to-day, life-on-life, when you lie down and when you rise up, instruction is so significant, it literally impacts eternity. It shapes your children's souls because it is the means by which God does His miraculous work of regeneration first and then sanctification throughout their lives. You say, but what if the Lord hasn't given me children of my own? Or what if I've been unable to have them? Or, Or what if I'm not married? I might love to be married, but the Lord simply hasn't given me this good gift yet, and I'm not sure He will. He may not. And I love how Elizabeth Elliot answers that. She says, the single woman can have children. She may be a spiritual mother by the very offering of her singleness, transformed for the good of far more children than a natural mother may produce. Now, I had dinner the other night with a young man who was one of 13 children. That's quite something, right? All of the same mother and father, so over the period of, I think, 
what is 23 years, 13 children. And yet, even as someone who is dedicated to making disciples, literally, <laughs> right, as that, can't catch up to the amount of women that a dedicated woman in the body of Christ could become mother to spiritually. Thirteen is about what a lifetime will top out at naturally, but spiritually, how many children could you have in a life of 30 and 40 and 50 years of following after Jesus? Eliot says, all is received, meaning even singleness, and made holy by the one to whom it is offered. And so to those sweet sisters in the Lord who grieve over not having your own biological children, take heart in the fact that you can be the mother to spiritual children in the Lord. Those younger women who need and long for the very discipleship that Scripture prescribes for all of us to engage in, but in this large church and fast-paced city in the modern world just seems so elusive to so many of us. And we see that in Titus chapter 2, another text that we've returned to again and again in this series. You can turn back there to Titus 2 and, and verse 3, where Paul says, Older women likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips nor enslaved to much wine, teaching what is good. Verse 4, so that they may train the young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands, so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Mature Christian women are to be teaching what is good. That might be somewhat of a striking comment to some because of how in 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul has so forcefully restricted the role of teaching in the local church to men alone, to qualified men. There he says, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. But this call to teach in Titus 2 comes in the context of the older women's discipleship of the younger women in the church. And you see that even in the word Paul chooses in verse 4. Why ought older women to be teaching what is good? So that they may, and the NAS has encourage here, but the term is sophronizo, to cause one to be sophron or sophronismos, which means to be sensible, sober, or of sound mind. The word literally means to cause someone to be of sound mind. It refers to helping others cultivate good judgment and good sensibilities. And so a good translation of the term, rather than encourage, is the word train, so that they may train the young women in the church to love their husbands, love their children, be sensible, pure, and so on. It refers to a kind of instruction that results in holy and godly living, which brings honor to Christ and to His Word. And in his, in his recent book, Let the Women Be Women, Pastor Chris Mueller explains that Sophronizo speaks of teaching by example so that others will learn beautiful virtues, good habits, godly behavior, and right attitudes. And he goes on, the true biblical training described in Titus 2 is not a seminar or a sermon. It is a life-on-life -life personal relationship and conversation. It's a discussion about how to apply God's Word in a small group of people, or even one-on-one. -on -one. It usually means a regular time of prayer together, asking for God to work in your life over specific issues like sins you're dealing with and character qualities you're hoping to develop. It's pursuing the goals in Titus 2 with a person or persons, holding you accountable to live biblically and Christ-like each day. Eventually, Mueller summarizes, this kind of, that summarizes that this kind of training, quote, speaks, more, that speaks of more than dumping content. It's sharing a life in order to change a life. More than dumping content, sharing a life in order to change a life. And all of that is so excellently said. This is what life in the body of Christ is about. It's these relationships where younger Christians can live life right alongside mature believers and see examples of faithfulness lived out in real time before them. It is so easy to let Christianity become a spectator sport, just 
come to church, go through the motions, and really never open your hearts and your homes to fellow believers to make it so that you just blend in with the crowd and remain anonymous. I had somebody say that to me the other day, that they prefer to just remain anonymous in the church. You don't know what the church is. No one really knows what things are like at home, what things are like between you and the Lord. That's not life in Christ. That's life severed from the body of Christ. And the result of that kind of disjointed, disconnected living is perpetual immaturity. It's a congregation that may be well taught, or at least in the sense of being well informed, but who are spiritually stunted in their growth in Christ. Because they've never really learned to put the truths that they've learned into practice. Women learn how to be sound, mature, biblical Christian women. Not only from hearing femininity, biblical femininity preached from pulpits or explained in books, but from watching sound, mature, biblical Christian women. By watching them. By seeking their counsel. From inviting their correction. And of course the same is true of young men and older men as well. We've covered that already. So, Ladies, devote yourself to this kind of life together. Younger women, devote yourselves to seeking out this kind of discipleship from your elder sisters. And older women, devote yourselves to being a resource, to being a teacher of what is good to the next generation of Christian women in this place, in this church. And just briefly, to put a bow on what I said earlier, The focus of the teaching called for in this text isn't necessarily academic doctrinal instruction, right? It it certainly involves teaching younger women in in the church about their duties and responsibilities to their families, as Titus 2, 4, and 5 make plain. But all of that practical instruction is grounded in the great doctrines of the faith, in the principles of Scripture. You see, all sound living is rooted in and flows out from sound doctrine. Orthopraxy is the result or the product of orthodoxy. You can't live right unless you believe right. You can't believe right unless you're taught right and learn right. And so all of those doctrines of the faith that I spoke about in the previous point, bibliology, theology proper, and so on, all of those disciplines of theology that the biblical woman must be a learner of, they all form the only solid foundation upon which practically valuable life-on-life training can be sustained. Which means, ladies, that no area of biblical truth is off-limits for your study. You are to be a learner of all of them so that you can be a teacher, both to your children and to your fellow sisters in Christ. Well, there's a seventh mark of biblical womanhood that we come to next, and that is number seven. The biblical woman is eminent in good works. Eminent in good works. And this is somewhat of an obvious point. Every Christian should be eminent in good works. But Scripture does seem to single out this exhortation to good works in a couple of key passages which give instruction to Christian women. The first is 1 Timothy 2 and verse 10. So you can flip back there again. 1 Timothy 2, Paul has just said in verse 9 that he wants women to adorn themselves modestly and discreetly. And he says their beauty, their adornment, is not to consist in their hairstyle or their jewelry or in their designer clothing, but rather, verse 10, by means of good works, as is proper for women making a claim to godliness. If you're a woman who makes a claim to godliness, a woman who professes to follow after Jesus Christ, then it must be that your reputation for good works precedes you, that you are eminent in good works, that the people of God would recognize your own proven record of practical service to the saints, just as readily as we recognize someone's clothing. Not because you're bragging to others about all the wonderful ways that you serve. No, but because the natural tenor of your life is to be serving God's people. 
Well, there's a need. Well, who can we ask? Well, we certainly can depend on so-and-so. She's always ready to serve as long as she's able. That kind of thing. And then just turn over a few chapters to 1 Timothy 5. We've been to this text in this series as well, where Paul instructs Timothy about how the church is to serve widows. And he gives guidelines for the church to evaluate whether a widow should be financially supported by that local body of believers. And one of the criteria for such support is that such a woman must be eminent in good works. Look at 1 Timothy 5 and verses 9 and 10. A widow is to be put on the list only if she is not less than 60 years old, having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works. And I know none of us sets out to be a widow or a widower, and in God's kindness due to diligent planning, not every widow needs to be supported by the church. But I think it's safe to say that, ladies, if you found yourself in that situation, you ought to have conducted your life in such a way that even if you didn't need it, you would qualify for this kind of assistance. And having a good reputation, or excuse me, having a reputation for good works figures very prominently in that list of qualifications. You say, well, what kind of good works? Well, Paul gives you several of them. He says, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. And we'll just comment briefly on each of those. First, raising children as disciples of Jesus. And again, we addressed this in the previous sermon on homemaking, on being the oikot despotes, the master of the house. And also a bit in the previous points, so uh, I won't belabor it, but it is just so important, moms, that if the Lord has given you children, that you see raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord as the primary and most meaningful calling on your, on your life. You say, no, 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 it's my discipleship in Christ. Yes, of course, right? God before everything. But if you are a mom, this is what discipleship in Christ looks like for you, the people right in front of you. Second, showing hospitality. So in the day that Paul was writing, the early Christians were always traveling from city to city, bringing word of the gospel throughout the known world. And of course, there were no planes, trains, and automobiles back then. Uh, travel was much more laborious and dangerous. And so these missionaries and evangelists and uh, other Christian workers would need places to stay and be refreshed as a respite during their travels. And Paul says a Christian woman ought to have a reputation for opening her home to facilitate that kind of ministry. And while it might not look exactly the same today, of course, the principle still applies. A godly woman uses her home as the ground zero of her ministry labors, whereby she helps to refresh and meet the needs of the saints. Hospitality is, in part, keeping such an orderly, welcoming, functioning home that it becomes a home base or a hub for service to the body of Christ. And the text doesn't say anything about the home being spotless or spacious or outfitted with the most fashionable decor. You're not disqualified if, you, if those things don't mark your house. The home simply has to be hospitable, orderly, functioning, and welcoming, a place where the saints' needs could be met. Third, Paul speaks of washing the saints' feet. Now, in that day, people often walked around barefoot or with open sandals along dusty roads in the ancient Near East, and, and that meant that foot washing was no pleasant endeavor. It was a task that was given to the slaves. There was no more humble of a service than washing another person's feet, which is why it was such an astonishing display of humility for the Lord Jesus to wash his disciples' feet in John 13. I, when I got to that point in my preparation, I thought I could preach a whole message on that. No, we've got to stay focused, right? But what an amazing display of humility for the God of the universe to be doing the worst task that can be done uh, by the, the most menial of slaves. But eventually, washing the saints' feet became a euphemism for someone with a humble spirit of service after the pattern of the Lord Jesus, someone willing to devote themselves to the most menial, dishonorable, personally inconvenient works of service. Paul says, 
the biblical woman is marked by that kind of spirit. Fourth, he speaks of assisting those in distress. This is a woman, when she learns of a brother or sister in the, in the midst of a affliction, this is a woman who feels that affliction as if it were her own, who enters into that affliction herself and senses the responsibility to do all she can to relieve the pressure it causes. Whether that's just by being a good listener to the burdens of a fellow sister's heart or bringing the Word of God to bear in encouragement or exhortation or even correction or meeting a financial need if it's within her means, this is what she would devote herself to. Not long ago, a member of our church contacted us and said she was fearful for the safety of herself and her children and she needed to get out of her house for the night. And I called one of our other members who I knew lived fairly close by to this woman and who had space for a few guests. And uh, the couple I called has young kids and the wife was six or seven months pregnant. But when she heard of the distress this other sister was in, she bore the inconvenience and opened her home to these three fellow believers and assisted them in their distress for an entire weekend until they were able to make other arrangements. That's the kind of thing that Paul is talking about. Are you that kind of woman who devotes herself to her family and brings up children, or who bears with great inconveniences, who welcomes the most difficult and humble service like foot washing, who manages a home that's ready to become a haven when the need arises, who feels the needs of the saints as her own? That's the mark of biblical womanhood. And an eighth mark, of biblical womanhood is drawn from both this passage in 1 Timothy 5 and also back in Titus 2, and that is, number eight, she is to be sound in speech. Sound in speech. And so Titus 2 and verse 3 says, Older women are likewise are to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips, nor enslaved to much wine. And we spoke about this when we dealt with biblical manhood because Paul also urges the young men to be sound in speech, which is beyond reproach, Titus 2.8. And I'll repeat a little bit of what I said then. But no wild beast upon the earth is more difficult to tame than the unglorified human tongue. James 3 says that no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. He calls the tongue a fire the very world of iniquity. And Jesus himself says in Matthew 12, 36 and 37 that we will give an account for every careless word that we speak. And just as young men can tend to be careless with our words, Paul recognizes oftentimes women are beset by the temptation to gossip. The phrase, not malicious gossips in Titus 2, 3, is literally translated not devils. It's the word diabolos, which is used more than 30 times in the New Testament to refer to Satan. The term literally means a slanderer, and that's fitting for Satan, who is a liar and the father of lies, John 8, 44, who is the accuser of the brethren, he who accuses them before our God day and night, Revelation 12. So diabolos is a term that characterizes Satan, and it's the term Scripture uses for those who engage in the sin of gossip and slander. And as Paul discusses widows in 1 Timothy 5, he warns about, about putting women, uh, widows on the list for church assistance who engage in this kind of behavior. He says, 1 Timothy 5, 13, at the same time, they also learn to be idle, as they go around from house to house, and not merely idle, but also gossips and busybodies, talking about things not proper to mention. And the thought seems to be that the older women in Crete and perhaps the younger, women, the younger widows in Ephesus would have had more time on their hands than they knew what to do with, and so rather than being productive and using their time constructively, they would be idle, and they would pass the time going from house to house and telling and hearing stories, concerned with and talking about issues that were absolutely none of their business. And it's a short walk from that kind of busybodyism to gossip, and a short walk from gossip to the kind of slander, the kind of defamation and character, defamation of character and reputation that characterizes the very enemy of our souls. 
Now, I don't know if that sounds familiar to you, but I think that that may be the dictionary definition for some forms of social media, which has eliminated the need of going house to house, hasn't it? Scrolling through everyone's business, you know, remarking about their pictures, envying their vacations, complaining about their tweets. That kind of thing can mask itself with even with the cloak of righteousness, right? I'm just, I'm just using my social media to refute false doctrine. But before you know it, you know, that kind of keyboard warrior busybodyism has a, a woman in her own little world rebuking all sorts of people she's never met and has no responsibility for, all the while neglecting the responsibility she does have to care for her husband or her children or her home or her church. And so do you really have time, my dear discernment divas, to police evangelicalism's efforts or errors, rather, on the Internet while there are so many needs, so much discipleship to be done in your own home, in your own church, in your own Bible study, in your own heart? And eventually that kind of thing can't help but descend into gossip and slander, right? Can you believe what so-and-so said about such-and-such? Oh, he used to be so sound. Now this is so dangerous. All all kinds of defamatory and, and injurious remarks are spread many times about sound brothers and sisters in Christ. And I'm not saying the men don't do that too. They do. It's sad. But here is the admonition addressed to the ladies, and it says it ought not to be. Paul says the biblical woman recognizes that a good name is to be more desired than great wealth, Proverbs 22 and verse 1, and that therefore death and life are in the power of the tongue, Proverbs 18, 21, because a loose tongue can destroy a good name with great ease, which is one, just a parenthesis here, which is why we have to, guys and men and women, boys and girls, (laughs) We have to be, as Christians, training ourselves to not listen to gossip. When you hear a negative report about someone, you, you can't just automatically believe it. You just can't. Even if, oh, I was there. Well, how many times have you heard of an eyewitness, a personal eyewitness, give a spin on certain things? It just wasn't so if you were there and listening objectively. That's why by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every matter is to be established. That's why there's a standard of biblical corroboration. One of, the, one of the reasons that the tongue is so injurious to the reputations of believers is because people believe what they hear on first report, which is astounding to me given the emphasis that Scripture gives on not doing that very thing. And so we ought to be preservers of one another's reputations. If somebody is in the wrong, we ought to seek to, to cover that as much as possible, not to broadcast it as, wa- as far and wide as we can. There are biblical channels for correction, right? We're not, trying to, we're not talking about papering over sin or ignoring wickedness. Go to the person privately, take a second or third along, bring it to the church, and then remove them from yourselves, but n- not, you know, death by the, the, you know, trial by the court of public opinion. Absolutely not. And so when somebody says something to you, you, you have to take it seriously, especially if it's danger involved, right? But you don't lend credence to it wholesale, lock, stock, and barrel until you can confirm that. And so in this way, gossips will lose their juice, right? They'll lose their power. I can destroy someone's reputation if I just say this, if I just make this up, if I just sort of highlight this unkind, uh, unflattering thing. Why? Because I've got an auditory. I've got an audience with this. They listen to me. Well, if there's no auditory for it, right, if there's no audience, the whole thing dies down. For lack of uh, wood, the fire goes out, right? Close parenthesis. Good name is more to be desired than great wealth. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Proverbs 11.9 says, With his mouth the godless man destroys his neighbor. Destroys. And that's why Leviticus 19.16 identifies slander as acting against the life of your neighbor. And so I I preached a message a few years ago on the sins of gossip and slander. I called it How to Kill Your Neighbor. And I'd commend that to you if you haven't heard it. But a godly woman alongside a godly man refuses even to listen to, let alone participate in and perpetuate the demeaning of others. As Proverbs 31, 26 says, she opens her mouth in wisdom and the teaching of kindness 
is on her tongue. When her mouth opens, it's not defamation. It's not character assassination. It's wisdom. When, she, when her tongue is making noise, the teaching of kindness is on that tongue. Her mouth is filled with praises for her Savior's name and his work, so much so that she's got no time for dragging her brothers and sisters through the mud. And her gentle and quiet spirit restrains her from using her tongue to tear down rather than to build up. And, and there's so much more we could say about sound and speech, you know, just words of encouragement, insisting upon not complaining, upon not nagging, but time hurries us along, and the text says not malicious gossips, so I think we've, we've uh, covered that, been faithful to that. And so we hasten on, finally, to the ninth mark of biblical womanhood, the last we'll study in this series, though, of course, there's many other marks that we could mine out of the Scriptures, but that is that the biblical woman is marked by the fear of God rather than the fear of the future. The biblical woman is a fearer of God rather than the future. And so turn with me just briefly back to Proverbs 31, that famous tribute to the virtuous woman. Proverbs 31 and verse 30 says about the biblical woman, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears Yahweh she shall be praised. See, the biblical woman is a God-fearer. She worships and reveres God above all else. His word is the rule of her life. His will is the mandate for her ministry. His glory is the great preoccupation of her soul. And one result of that fear of God, we see just a few verses earlier in Proverbs 31, 25, is that strength and dignity are her clothing and she smiles at the future. She smiles at the future. Other translations say she laughs at the time to come because her faith and her hope are in God and in the promises of God. She looks forward even to what is by definition uncertain with a calm and settled joy. And that really steadies the home, doesn't it? When mom is frazzled and anxious and frenetic about the uncertainties of the days to come, be it the near future or the far future, the rest of the house tends to follow suit. Why? Well, one, because children spend most of their time with their mom, and so they do tend to imitate her affect in demeanor in a number of ways. And two, because dad often spends his time anxiously trying to ease his wife's anxiety. If he's an attentive husband, he does anyway. But when mom is calm and happy and joyful, when she smiles at the future, not fearful of anything because of her trust in her sovereign God, the children tend to imitate that settled and happy confidence. And dad delights in his virtuous wife who is worth far more than jewels. And Peter says this as well. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. It's there that he gives that call for wives to be submissive to their own husbands, even when their husbands are disobedient to the word. It's the passage where he urges them to be chaste and respectful and to have a gentle and quiet spirit. And then in verses 5 and 6, Peter says, For in this way, in former times, the holy women also, who hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Say, what sense does that make? Well, we all understand the call for a woman to be submissive to her own husband as an expression of her womanhood, especially in this context where the husband is an unbeliever. We understand that that call can be scary, right? It can cause even godly women to be tempted to become fearful. You know, but if I submit myself to this man who's not even obedient to Christ, he's going he's to run right over me. He's going to make me a doormat. My life will be miserable. 
If I really give myself to this unfettered pursuit of biblical femininity in being a, help for, in being a helper, in pursuing a modest beauty, in cultivating a gentle and quiet spirit, being a worker at home, and, and all we've talked about this morning, if I, if I surrender my own identity and, and who I've always thought of myself to be, well, I'll lose myself. I'll be so vulnerable. And, and what if I don't find it as fulfilling and as pleasant and all the things you say it is, Pastor? And Peter says, dear sisters, there is no reason to fear the future if you fear the Lord. If obedience to the Lord's command to embrace your womanhood leads you to difficult submission, even difficult submission to an unbelieving husband, as is the context in 1 Peter 3, you trust the Lord enough to let that fear be banished from your heart. You trust in your God that his word will never lead you away from his blessing. And you concern yourself with, what does it say? Doing what is right. Don't fear, do right, trust God. John Piper put it this way. He wrote, the presence of hope in the invincible sovereignty of God drives out fear. Or to say it more carefully and realistically, the daughters of Sarah fight the anxiety that rises in their hearts. They wage war on fear, and they defeat it with hope in the promises of God. And he goes on, a Christian woman does not put her hope in her husband or in getting a husband. She does not put her hope in her looks or her intelligence or her creativity. She puts her hope in the promises of God. She laughs at everything the future could bring because she hopes in God. She looks away from the troubles and miseries and obstacles of life that seem to make the future bleak. And she focuses her attention on the sovereign power and love of God who rules in heaven and does on earth whatever he pleases, Psalm 115.3. She knows her Bible and she knows her theology of the sovereignty of God and she knows his promise that he will be with her and will help her and strengthen her no matter what. This is the deep, unshakable root of Christian womanhood. Amen. Well said. You see, the path of obedience will not always be easy. It will not always bring comfort and ease and worldly prosperity. But the path of obedience, the path of faithfulness to God's design in your femininity, will bring fellowship with Jesus, who knew what it was to suffer for righteousness' sake and knew what it was to subject himself even to wicked men for the sake of faith-filled obedience to his Father's plan. And though it meant Gethsemane, and though it meant Golgotha, and though it meant being forsaken by his Father, he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem, determined to accomplish your redemption. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Right? He feared the Lord his God above all else, and he smiled at the future. A future that he could see by the eye of faith. A future that would restore to him the glory that he had with the Father before the world was. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Oh, there will be shame for the faithful follower of Christ on the path of obedience? Well, then we will despise that shame just as he did. We will think nothing of that shame. We will look ahead to the glory to be revealed in us that the sufferings of this present time can't compare to. And we will smile at our future because our future is with him. And if there is anyone here today who is uncertain as to whether your future is with him, or anyone who is certain that unless something changes, your future is not with him, but apart from him in that fearful place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. I urge you this morning to repent and trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. We sang of it before. We prayed it before. But you, my unbelieving friend, man, woman, boy, or girl, you have broken the law of Almighty God. 
And as a result of that, you sit here this morning a debtor to his justice. Scripture says the wages of sin is death. The penalty for disobeying infinite holiness is infinite punishment. The eternal death of everlasting fire in hell. And because God is good and holy and just, he will insist that lawbreakers who deserve death receive their just punishment. Which means you will go there unless you can offer something to satisfy the infinite justice of this righteously offended God. But there's nothing you can offer. His righteous standard is so out of reach and your sinfulness is so pervasive in you that nothing you could offer him could satisfy to pay this debt that you owe. Scripture says the best of our righteous deeds are nothing but filthy rags to a God who is this holy. But the good news that I have the privilege of preaching to you this morning is that a sufficient ransom payment has been made by a qualified substitute, by a surety willing to bear all of your debts. The Lord Jesus Christ, fully man, and so therefore able to stand in your place justly, and fully God, and so able to survive your curse without perishing, has stood in the place of sinners. And he has become a curse for us, Galatians 3 says, by dying upon the cross of Calvary and bearing in his own person all the fullness of God's wrath against the sins of his people, the very wrath that stands ready to break over your head, unbeliever, if you pass from this life without him. He bore the fury of the punishment that you deserved to experience for eternity in hell and satisfied the justice of God in those three terrible hours. Dear sinner, he died for sinners, just like you and me. And because they weren't his own sins that he died for, and because his righteousness was infinite, because his sacrifice was perfectly acceptable, on the third day he rose from the grave in victory over sin and death, certifying that eternal life now lay in his hands to dispense as he pleases. And his promise is that everyone who turns from their sins and puts their trust in his righteousness alone to avail with them before the bar of God's justice will be saved, will have their sins forgiven, their stains washed away, their eternity changed from death to life, from hell to heaven. And so, sinner, don't wait another day. Confess your sins, come to Christ in faith, and lay hold of eternal life, and then smile at the future. And dear brothers and sisters, sisters especially since so, so much of my comments have been directed to you, it's the strength of that gospel. It's the strength of my sins have been forgiven, my stains have been washed away, all the ways that I've failed, all the ways that I've failed to steward these responsibilities the way that Scripture calls me to. It's, it, it's resolved in the cross of Christ. It's finished. Christ says, I have paid the penalty. I have satisfied the debt. And now, in the power of a, a clean slate, in the power more, of a clean, more than a clean slate, but of perfect righteousness draped over your shoulders, walk in conformity to that calling of righteousness. Be, use the, the power of the gospel, the power of I'm a justified sinner to put into practice all of these marks of biblical womanhood, a helper, beautiful in your modesty, a gentle and quiet spirit, one who devotes herself to working at home, one who is a learner and a teacher of the doctrines of Scripture in the appropriate applications, one who's eminent in good works, one who is sound in speech, one who smiles at the future because she knows her future is with Christ. Use the gospel. Put the gospel to use in your own heart so, so as to press on in making, holy, in making progress in holiness in just these ways. And, and brothers, don't you be left out. There's a danger in coming to the end of a series like this to sort of forget what was said a little while ago. But I pray that God will be pleased to use these messages, which I trust are from his word, to shape us into the men and women that we need to be, to be able to, to, to answer the perverseness of our culture. And I think that many of us are ready to insist that the, the absurdities of transgenderism are as absurd as they are, that men and women are different. 
but we have to follow that up with a life of integrity of biblical masculinity and femininity. What good is it to insist that men and women are different if we don't act different? What good is it to say that God has designed men and women to be distinct if we don't order our lives the way that God has called men and women to order them? You see, it's in obedience to the design of God outlined for us in these scriptures, so kind to give us such a blueprint that we do actually stand as stars shining in distinction uh, in the world. What's Paul say in Philippians 2, right? You'll shine like stars in the heavens in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. We need to be the living examples of biblical manhood and womanhood, not, not only for our culture's sake, but for God's sake, because of who, what he deserves and who he's made us to be and that is how, that, really, church health is downstream from that. What is more basic to your identity than whether you're a man or a woman? Only that you're a Christian, right? And so the, the faithfulness of Christianity is lived out as faithful men, biblical men, and biblical women. I pray that, that you would take these truths to heart, that you'd revisit them as necessary, that you would pray them into your soul, that they will have changed you, and that we could honor Christ in this place. Let's pray. Father, that is our prayer. We want only to exalt the name of our Savior. And we pray that you would seal these words of truth to our hearts and give us the grace to walk in their power unto your honor and glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. For more information about the ministry of the Grace Life Pulpit, visit at www.thegracelifepulpit.com. Copyright by the Grace Life Pulpit. All rights reserved.